Welcome to everyone listening to UNESCO's Inclusive Policy Lab podcast series. Today, we have another expert conversation run by the lab as part of our expert series focusing on COVID, its social policy implications, and the idea of a post-COVID reset. That means, from a UNESCO perspective, obviously a reset along a more equitable and inclusive path. As in all of these podcasts, we'll be talking on the one hand about concrete policy measures seen by our invited experts as being conducive to such an equitable recovery, looking at specific real-world examples as well as more general arguments. And we'll also be looking at the data and the knowledge that we have or would need to support, inform, justify, or possibly invalidate uh, proposed policy shifts. Our expert today is Elise Klein, Senior Lecturer at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. Elise, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So today we will be focusing on um, Australia's unconditional transfer experiment, how it links to the idea of a universal basic income, how it performed, what we can learn from it, perhaps also how it is developing and uh, where it might go. Uh, this is the first time we've had the opportunity to discuss uh, Australia in this series. We've had a lot of discussion about the US, about uh, certain parts of Europe, about South Asia, and this will be therefore a very complementary and very enlightening discussion. And of course, Elise, um, even if we're focusing on Australia, your insights into other countries um, will be much appreciated. Uh, this discussion at the global level is very much a comparative uh, discussion. So, you Elise have recently completed research on Australia's freshly implemented unconditional supplement for citizens. Um, you've researched this scheme and have fresh data on it. Could you perhaps explain to our listeners how this uh, scheme connects to a universal basic income and how it differs perhaps from uh, the idea of a universal basic income? What, how was it designed? What was it meant to achieve? And insofar as we have uh, sufficient information at this stage, what have been the outcomes? Sure, absolutely. I mean, the first thing to say is that um, that it wasn't quite an unconditional um, transfer, but I'll get to that just shortly. Um, but just to sort of paint the picture uh, of, of the sort of Australian social security and labour market scene, uh, that uh, Australia has... Um, about, has had prior to COVID probably about a 5% unemployment rate. However, uh, there is a higher underemployment rate. So people who are answering the question in the Australian census of if they could have more work, uh, would you take it, but you just can't find enough hours. And that's, um, you know, in the, the, the sort of around the 13% the mark and it's much higher for, for young people. On top of that, um, we have a very punitive social security system. So like other Western nations, uh, this kind of idea of welfare conditionality has been a long-standing idea in the sort of Australian um, sci or policy psyche, if you like, uh, where we have conditions not just on what you have to do to get 
your welfare payments, so uh, programs like work for the dolls, so um, needing to show your willingness to do all sorts of activities to get a, 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 a your income, um, but uh, and particularly how these work for the doll and these conditions impact particularly First Nations people. Australia is a settler colony. Um, we have many First Nations um, and uh, uh, tensions of over sovereignty and and land continue very much um, in in the sort of Australian political landscape, um, and so welfare has long been used as a as a tool of assimilation for First Nations people and a tool of of I guess disciplinary action against First Nations people and wealth, work for the dole is definitely um, a tool in that respect, but it's and it's also used uh, more broadly. So there's conditions on what you have to do to get money, but also Australia has conditions on what you can do when you get social security, which is this idea of income management. Uh, and so uh, your money is quarantined on a particular bank card um, that is con controlled by a, an outs a privatised organisation, and you can only spend it on certain certain items. Um, and so that's this idea of income management, which is also um, targeted at First Nations people as well as uh, non-First Nations people. So this is, I'm just setting the scene of the very punitive uh, social security landscape of, of, of Australia. I should also say that the rate of social security um, since 1994 has, hasn't uh, risen. And so uh, before COVID hit, uh, it was well, people receiving it found themselves well below the poverty line um, and very hard to survive on the social security payments. So that was the landscape until COVID hit. And so when COVID hit, uh, there was a lot of lockdown. So um, businesses had to, to st store their activities. Uh, the borders started to close and basically people started to lose their jobs. Um, and uh, the unemployment rate in its peak got to about 7.1%, uh, which sounds low, but that's because the Australian government did, uh, did two... Uh, major policies in, in this period, which completely reversed their, their kind of position uh, in the policy landscape up until that point. So the first policy was this idea called the job keeper, and that effectively paid uh, employees to keep staff. And that's why that unemployment rate seems low, is because the amount of people uh, who would have lost their jobs uh, were actually covered by this job keeper in that they got to stay employed technically, even though they weren't doing much work, they weren't going in, they just got this, this payment uh, every fortnight. So that was the job keeper. So it's estimated that it sort of, it, it almost, uh, it always hid uh, up to about 2 million people um, from falling into to unemployment. Uh, and then you have what our research was focusing on was this payment called the job seeker payment. So uh, effectively, this payment was paid to people who weren't eligible for JobKeeper, who found themselves in Social Security. And for all the people that were already on Social Security, they also found themselves being called and under this idea of job seeker. And what that meant... Um, was that they were paid uh, a supplement of $550 a fortnight, which so people who had previously been on unemployment benefits uh, found themselves for the first time for a long time above the poverty level with their payments, plus 
those welfare conditionality, that work, work for the dole, um, uh, uh, ceased. So they suspended that also. So effectively, people who had been stigmatised and have been subject to all sorts of punitive measures as part of the Australian Social Security uh, were given uh, enough money to survive, plus uh, um, they were given their time back through the mutual obligation. And this is this uh, was where myself and uh, my, my um, colleagues found a really important moment to understand what was going on for people here. And so we conducted some research with people on this job seeker payment, understanding what it meant for, for their lives, and particularly people who had been on, uh, uh, on, on social security payments for, for some time and before uh, these measures came into play. Basically, uh, what we found uh, was a, a range of different insights. So one is that uh, with the extra money, people found themselves uh, being able to meet their basic needs. So being able to buy food um, enough to last the week without having to ration food, um, being able to pay for their medicines um, and not have to ration medicines, uh, and being able to pay down their debts that they had accrued uh, because of living under financial stress. Um, and so, you know, if I could just quote a couple of people here. Um, so somebody uh, who had been uh, on uh, unemployment benefits for some time says, I was able to get medical and dental issues sorted out that, I, that I'd forgot about for literally years beforehand. I was able to buy new clothes for myself not having to ration foods and meds, being able to keep my son in new clothes. Um, another person said I could buy uh, more groceries and not worry about paying bills in the same week. People also reported uh, around being able to look after their kids better, feeling like they could provide better for their kids without uh, uh, feeling like they had to ration, um, that they had enough money to be able to do that. Uh, and, uh, and then also... Um, their psychological health increased too. People talk very much about uh, not having to live under the psychological stress of not having enough um, to to keep the the family going, um, to keep themselves going, and worrying about where um, the next uh, meal would come from. So uh, this, you know, shows that the rate of payments matter um, to to people. The other thing that I think is interesting about this study is that uh, people who had been subject to conditionalities also got their time back. So instead of it being filled up by policies around needing to do work for the doll and other, you know, make work activities, um, that they were able to have their time back. Uh, and people reported various impacts about that also, uh, including uh, about psychological health, so not having to be under stigma, um, not having anxiety of being uh, uh, followed up by uh, we, the agency in Australia is called Centrelink, um, being hounded by them um, to have to turn up, not having to live under the threat, threat of being sanctioned for not turning up to activities or if there's issues with the activities, um, being able to have their time back. Um, but also we asked what they were able to do with their time 
And what was interesting is that people talk very much about the extra time gave them uh, space. Uh, uh, so time, not just in terms of minutes, but also, I guess, mental space, mental time to think and to be strategic about how they wanted to go and what did they want to do in the future. Um, some people started small initiatives, um, small um, um, enterprises in the community. A lot of people did a lot of social reproductive work, um, looking after neighbours, um, doing volunteering and work in the community, um, looking after elderly people. Um, and then others, others use their time and also the extra funds to invest in uh, further study for their economic futures, um, that they looked and spent more time working on their CV um, and trying to sort of think about um, entering the labour market on their own terms um, and, and having space and time to be able to think through what that, that might mean. doesn't mean that those, those initiatives, those particularly the ones trying to get into to work, um, have resulted in work as Australia is still very much in a recession and jobs are, are hard to come by still. Um, but uh, that, that people with that extra time were able um, to, 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 to invest in, in this. So, I mean, what this sort of shows is that with economic security, and it isn't a basic, it isn't a universal basic income, it was conditional um, and it wasn't universal, uh, but yet still with people with not having conditions, not having um, uh, conditions on what people have to do to do have um, to be able to get their money uh, and, and have economic security, uh, our research is, is suggesting that uh, people uh, give back a lot into the community. People do all sorts of social reproductive and care labour, um, but also volunteering and, and community work. Um, people talked about doing advocacy work in their time. Uh, and then also there's, there's people who reported very much about um, uh, trying to look for work and, and be more strategic in how they engaged with the labour market. So I think these are, you know, is, is interesting. I think it also shows uh, how easy it is for a government um, that is has been ideologically focused in a very particular direction with a, with literally with the sign of the pen of the tre treasurer that money were released to um, to many people who had for years and years been stigmatized as welfare dependent um, and and showed uh, that actually they contribute to all sorts of activities that that um, society needs and is actually dependent on. Uh, and so I think I think that's that is very interesting. Thank you. Thank you very much. It is indeed because at, at one level, um, the benefits you described of unconditional income schemes are exactly what their advocates have been arguing for for years, uh, based on both principled arguments and some uh, evidence of real world schemes in various places. Yet the resistance has been incredibly strong for a whole series of reasons, which, as you said, are deeply ideological. It reminds me of the uh, well-known passage in The Road to Wigan Pier, George Orwell, 1936, hardly um, uh, an up-to-date uh, tome, which is a lot about um, welfare conditionality and quotes the um, phrase that Orwell claims to have heard on many occasions, it's pointless giving miners baths because they'll only use them to keep coal in. 
Um, in other words, the idea that people who need help need to be punished for needing help is yeah. deeply ingrained in the whole design of um, benefit, welfare, uh, social provision systems. But that creates a paradox. Why? How could it change so fast? Uh, was it because, and just sketching some hypotheses to, in, to invite you to um, um, give your own view on this, one, one possible argument is COVID was such a shock, such a systemic uh, shock, that it basically swept the board of um, pre-existing prejudices and views and created a space for improvisation, uh, which isn't always a good thing, but at least allowed things to be done uh, in ways that perhaps wouldn't have been possible uh, even um, a couple of years ago. That also perhaps suggests that it might not be a durable change and that it could go very back, quickly back to the status uh, quo ante. Another possibility at the opposite end of the uh, spectrum is that the concerns about the administrative inefficiencies and counterproductive social and individual consequences of um, very strict conditionalities were actually well known, um, but it needed something to tip policymakers over the edge, finally recognizing that schemes that were known not to work would have to change in uh, in new circumstances. And of course, there could also be the possibility of ideological shifts. Uh, people have genuinely, um, particularly perhaps on the political right, changed their views on these issues, maybe. I don't know if there's any evidence for that. And finally, and you referred to this in uh, the, the early part of what you said earlier, um, the connection with other aspects of uh, politics, particularly the, the politics um, of First Nations, as you as you indicated, uh, which are very important in areas other than social policy and create a climate um, that might be favorable to policy change in this particular area. So you can sketch all, all kinds of hypotheses. Um, it's difficult uh, to choose between them in Europe, for instance. Uh, how does it look from Australia? Is this a real fundamental ideological shift, a set of improvisations, uh, or something that is specific um, to uh, the social policy area and reflects known drawbacks and deficiencies of, uh, of the welfare system? This story uh, has more to it in that um, that and it doesn't it hasn't it's not moving in in a, a good direction when you look at those kinds of results. So um, it was a temporary measure, and so there was hope that you know the government would keep these payments uh, high, that that um, or, or livable at least, and that uh, mutual obligations would remain uh, off the table. But yet. Uh, when we were doing the research, actually that $550 supplement uh, was reduced by $300 a fortnight. Um, so people then got $250 a fortnight. So people went from $99 a day uh, to $57 a day. And uh, people reported during our research, you know, already people having to start to ration, already stressed about um, how they were going to be able to provide for their children. Uh, and and those gains that were, were made, uh, people reported having to pull back on. Um, so since the 
Australian government has announced uh, at the end of this month that uh, the, the whole supplement will stop, which will mean effectively uh, that the payment, uh, and they've, they've announced a small raise to the payment, which actually isn't a raise at all. It comes down to $44 a day because the supplement ends and then the original payment, which was $40 a day, uh, they've, they've said we'll raise that to $44 a day. Australia's a very expensive place to live uh, and that, you know, is a, this, this, these announcements are very concerning. So. It was temporary, um, which is, of course, very dispiriting for a lot of people who, for the first time, felt um, human again. I mean, these are the kinds of responses people were talking about. The other interesting thing is that uh, we compared people's responses to people who didn't get the supplement but were were uh, people who had um, were on job uh, job keeper. Uh, or were able to continue working during their their uh, during COVID, who reported all sorts of negative experiences through COVID from the stress of lockdowns, and this contrasted very differently to people that were on the supplement, who for a long time had been persecuted and and had felt um, very you know stigmatised. They actually had a positive experience during COVID because of the, because of the supplement. So it shows just how far pushed back or pushed under um, their experiences of, of life is because of the social security system. And when people uh, had had these measures, um, they had a positive experience, whereas, you know, the general population who, you know, I guess the middle class, if you like, found it much difficult, much more difficult under COVID. Um, but their general experience is very far from those on social security. So having said all of that, I mean, it is, it, it was a, a moment in time, um, but it does show how quickly things can change. Um, and it does show that um, when forced, governments can make these decisions and, and you know, ideological governments can make these decisions. Um, if only we could we could see them see them keep them. On the issue of um, we, uh, First Nations, another interesting um, thing to note is that in Australia um, in the 70s there was a program implemented that was quite like uh, um, a basic income for First Nations people, particularly living remotely. Uh, it was called the Community Development Employment Projects. And so block amounts of money were given to community organisations to pay people uh, a wage for work. Um, now, work here was is because employment is a very narrow concept. Feminists have been saying this for a long time, but so have First Nations scholars, where, uh, uh, you know, work can mean a much broader array of activities, productive activities, care of country. Um, so First Nations people, very deep, um, important connections with the land, um, care of community, um, and, and of course care of children and elderly uh, and maintaining culture amidst a very punitive settler colonial environment. Um, and so these block grants were given to re remote communities and people were paid a wage to do work in a very broad sense. Now, you know, uh, people did a lot of that work, but then other people for whatever reason couldn't work so you know may have been ill or um, may have been doing other certain certain activities 
um, and they were paid nonetheless. Uh, and so my work with John Altman, Professor John Altman in the Northern Territory, was documenting how uh, these payments acted like a basic income because they were paid, even if people did these activities or not, um, people were still paid the money and it acted like a, a basic income. The sad story to that is that um, from the 2000s onwards, the uh, consecutive Australian federal governments have taken a much more punitive approach to First Nations people, and those that program has been scaled back and it's been transferred into uh, a work for the dole, a very, very punitive work for the dole, um, different, more punitive than the, the non-remote uh, um, re programs, um, non-First Nations programs. Um, and poverty levels have increased because of that, and also unemployment levels have increased because of that. So, um, you know, we have examples here, but the ability for that ideological shift, that deep mindset in the sort of settler psyche of, of obsession with work and needing to contribute um, in very particular terms, in terms of employment, uh, really undermines people's economic security. There are, um, thank you very much. There are some things that, you, that you've alluded to but not um, gone into any detail on that I'd like to uh, probe, if you allow me. Uh, one is financing. Um, I, I imagine there was no specific uh, financing method for the emergency schemes uh, in line with what was done uh, elsewhere. But to what extent have discussions about how uh, unconditional schemes are to be financed played on particular, particularly the durability, and in this case, um, uh, absence of durability. Um, as you know, there are some very interesting discussions, uh, both in scholarly circles and in policy circles, about creating uh, financing schemes for, min for, the, for minimum income that would allow it to be both more sustainable and more politically legitimate. For instance, tying it to a carbon tax, which is something uh, we talked in detail about in a, in a previous podcast in this series. A second thing you um, alluded to but didn't mention explicitly is the gender dimension. And I, I'd be interested if you could um, say a bit more explicitly uh, about what your research has revealed about uh, the gendering both of the inequalities uh, embedded in conditional schemes and uh, the effects, positive, negative or even neutral effects um, on uh, the gendering of uh, unconditional schemes. Sure. So, I mean, on the financing, um, you know, what what is so the sort of political landscape prior to COVID? The government has been desperate to pay off deficit, um, and so elections have been won and lost on these ideas of, you know, we are the economic managers, we will get Australia back into the black, you know, and be in front of, of you know, so the idea of debt, um, you know, which is, of course, is very contested, has been highly politicised. Now, when COVID hit, uh, the federal government signed, um, you know, one of the biggest budgets uh, that 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 um, that has been seen. I think maybe even the biggest post, uh, you know, the war period. So, um, so all of a sudden, huge amounts of money were were found, and uh, the this whole idea of debt, 
uh, has com completely disappeared off the the, the political landscape. Uh, although journalists have tried to sort of you know, put that to the treasurer, to the prime minister, um, and you know they've been able to say, well, no, this was an emergency scenario. But even after, so now they have just released a budget of sort of the post-COVID recovery. Again, it's a very large budget um, that is looking at, at, money, at amounts of money that have are just far beyond any budget um, that has been released uh, um, yeah, since the, the, the war period. Um, and so I say this to, to, to say that, that there is money, they can find money, and these ideas of, of you know, what, um, you know, being able to, to, to afford um, the economic security for people, uh, it really is a political uh, uh, framing uh, issue. Um, now, some of those payments that, that have been the most expensive has been the JobKeeper payment that paid employee, employers to keep on their employees. Um, the JobSeeker uh, amount was, was much less. I, I mean, colleagues and I have looked at this for a long time and have, you know, proposed other basic income um, ideas previously and, you know, it, before COVID. Uh, and and looked at you know the amounts of uh, tax cuts to businesses and and sort of the elite of Australian society um, would cover a livable income guarantee uh, for for people um, uh, in in Australia. So you know these ideas around financing are, are very politicised, uh, and these ideas about scarcity and and the inability to provide people um, economic security because of these concerns of debt. Um, you know, I think this COVID period has shown how, how, they, how much they are on shaky ground and how much they can find political reasons to, 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 to spend that, that, those kinds of money. Um, on gender, look, with the, with the COVID supplement, a lot of the people in our research were actually single mums. Um, and so, uh, so they definitely reported how much the the extra payment, but also the reduction of or the suspension of mutual obligations, completely changed their lives. Um, and so, whilst we have work for the doll, we also have a program called Parents Next, which targets single mums actually. So um, it looks at people that haven't been in the labour force, women in the labour force um, after six months uh, and it requires them to come to welfare conditionality programs, activities, make work kind of activities. And the assumption of course is, is they're not working. But in reality, of course they're working, um, that they are looking after, they're the single carer for children. Um, and you know, care, unpaid childcare, is uh, vital for the economy to even exist. That you know, if I can put it crudely, you don't have the next generation of taxpayers unless someone's there to to raise the children. So people are treated as if they are welfare dependent, but yet actually the economy and society are dependent on their unpaid labour. Uh, and so when people, when these women were were given the the um, supplement and also their time back. Um, you know, they were able, like I said, to be able to provide more, feel like they could provide more for their children. I mean, 
can't see it in front of me, but one of the quotes that um, came from the research was about a woman who had to ration her ch child's milk, um, the, the bottle milk for her child, um, which is really, really, uh, you know, qu quite a, an awful situation to, for, for someone to find them to be put in. Um, but also being able to, uh, you know, have time to be able to spend with their kids without feeling like they're, they were being a bad mum. And that's what these kinds of welfare conditionality programs do to people. So, you know, feeling dignified um, and being able to be there with their kids, I think is, you know, now that, that is a different experience to people, um, you know, the middle class and how the middle class responded uh, during COVID because, uh, they were, you know, childcare centres closed down um, and so people and particularly women had to take on looking after their kids in the home as well as working from home um, and, and, and so, you know, their reports of the COVID experience were very different um, but that is a contrast to people who have been so dehumanised for so long being given freedom back again um, and what a difference that made to, to people's lives. Thank you. Um... So we've been talking a lot about Australia, which is not a criticism, of course, because it was the whole point. Uh, but nonetheless, um, given um, what is specific about the Australian case and what is perhaps generalizable, um, what, what would you see as lessons that could be learned from uh, the various things we've been discussing beyond the specifics of the Australian situation? And of course, we're particularly interested, um, if you want to comment on this, on how minimum income schemes whether UBI or some other version of minimum income uh, can play out in developing countries? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, one thing I think that this this research feeds into, which is a, a, de a debate or not really, I mean, it's a sort of a, an argument in the, the basic income circles is just how narrow uh, the ideas of, of uh, of, of employment and, and empl employment as work are um, and how people contribute very in very broad ways to, to the society um, and the economy. And so, I mean, feminists have been saying this for a long time. I also pointed out pre before that First Nations people point at this for a long time. So there's this obsession with the institution of uh, employment as the way in which people get economic security uh, really needs to be rethought because here are a whole lot of people who have been long stigmatised um, and, and you know, this within a society that believes that, you know, treating pre people in a generous way through social security is an impediment for people to be productive um, hence, they need to be treated with stigma and welfare conditionality and low payments. Um, actually, shows that that's not quite the case at all. In fact, people contribute on various in various ways and have done for a long time and and and, and have done in in this this in the co in this time of COVID. So I think that's a very important uh, point that I think our our research speaks to and it speaks into these broader discussions around why do we link economic security with the institution of employment, particularly because, um, and this goes to your question about the global south, um, that uh, in the institution of employment is, is not, um, has not been a promise that has been uh, achieved for the majority of the world, that the majority of the world um, live and, and survive on an informal economy where uh, work 
uh, is precarious and highly um, condition, uh, highly uh, um, uh, uh, insecure, and uh, and so you know, and, and and so people are having to survive in a, in a very difficult environment, um, and so you know there are development policies that that see this space as a very entrepreneurial space, but I think that's almost a bit cruel in that people, you know, yes, are creative and yes, are trying to make ends meet, but but because they're trying to survive. Um, and so, you know, the need to offer economic security across the board, I think, is is more important than ever. Um, and and I think, you know, that is a really great contribution of, of what basic income uh, is is providing. We've talked a lot about policy issues, which is in many ways what we want to focus on in the Inclusive Policy Lab, hence the name. But there are also some really interesting research level issues that you've um, referred to and that I'd like in the closing part of uh, this discussion uh, to look at a little bit. One of the challenges we have, particularly in setting up the right kinds of policy oriented or policy relevant discussions is um, producing the kinds of data and more generally the kinds of information that will convince people with sort of prima facie negative views about um, the benefits of unconditional uh, income schemes that in fact uh, those benefits are both real and significant. Um, you've described in a very interesting way, certainly for me as a, as a social scientist, the ways in which your research has given you granular access to people's experiences, their voices, their understanding of their own situation, and how particular schemes have provided benefits for them, or the rollback of those schemes has uh, provided, uh, put burdens uh, upon them. Um, at the same time, no research methodology can capture everything. Uh, one of the gaps that you would really like to see addressed, um, whether in qualitative research or at the more quantitative level, uh, what are the things you'd really want to know and that you hope someone would either support you in doing or, or do if it's not the area you would like to focus on yourself? And this also connects to the policy level question or the public debate question. What do we need to know about these issues that we currently don't? Yeah, I mean, look, this, I mean, as a researcher, you always want to do more. So, you, you know, I mean, basic income you know, scholars have been thinking about trials for quite some time. And so there is been an emergence of trials across, you know, various parts of the world. And I think that's exciting. I will say, though, I think, um, you know, trials, uh, data is always uh, uh, used politically. And so, um, you know, I think whilst trials are important because, you know, there's a lot of interest in them and people, um, you know, uh, can see and can hear the changes that that these kinds of unconditional uh, payments can bring for people um, at an individual and a, a social level. Um, data can be manipulated and and politicised, and I think we saw that with the Canadian trial just recently. That you know, the change of go government came in and the trials stopped. Um, you know, even here in Australia, you know, COVID. Uh, the um, uh, the numbers st stopped increasing, um, and there's you know there's been some sort of steadiness here for a while, and so job uh, keeper has been been wound back, and conditionality has come in. So um, 
you know, data can be used very politically. So I, I guess, you know, I think what I, I would just like to see is these things being, uh, you know, legislated um, within countries. Uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, Carl, I think it's Carl Weiderquist uh, talks about, you know, the, the amount of energy that goes into putting together a trial, why not use that energy into just rolling out a permanent basic income? Um, and I think that's a, a very important and interesting question, given the ways in which even, you know, great experiments can be politicised, data can be re-interpreted uh, uh, in various ways. So, you know, I think there's a question here, which sort of, I guess, straddles the policy research space is, is why not put the energy into into rollout and permanent rollouts? Okay, uh, that that um, that critical perspective on on uh, data is of course very important for the uh, kind of space that we occupy as an intergovernmental organisation, uh, connecting uh, knowledge production and knowledge communities to the uh, to the policy process. Um, is our qualitative approaches uh, which allow, shall we say, stories to emerge, not from the way the data is manipulated in the general sense, not necessarily the negative sense, but from the um, research itself, and particularly from the voices of the people concerned by what the research is about. Is, is qualitative data somehow less um, uh, susceptible to political manipulation because of its methods, because it's more inclusive and participatory, because it's less definitive, uh, because it doesn't create the illusion of certainty that numbers tend to provide. Is is, is it something like that um, that's implicit in uh, what you were just saying about uh, the problems with data? Yeah, thank, thanks for the question. Uh, look, I, I think it can be, but it also, of course, can be can be politicised. But I'll, I'll say this, I, and I, because one of my concerns that um, I've had with basic income, and particularly in the way it often gets presented, um, is that it's a sort of homogenous idea, and that it's a technical fix. That if you just do X, Y, and Z, that you know A, B, and C will happen. Um, and these things, these processes, are way more political. And I think. Uh, and this is, you know, research that myself and my colleague uh, um, Liz Folksman at University of Oxford have, have been working on, is, is thinking critically about the politics involved in a basic income. You know, it's, it's you know, a very um, exciting idea, but but to think about the, the the experiences, the relations of power that underpin that, and and that definitely speaks to your question about the role of qualitative research. Um, and how it can talk about the stories, uh, the the sort of conditions, the contingent conditions of of impacts, um, you know, the genealogies of uh, and the histories and uh, and the life stories uh, that that come into uh, these these often um, presented technical fixes. Um, and so I, I do see definitely a role for qualitative data, but I mean, of course, it can be politicised. Um, uh, and you know, power of course comes into all generations of knowledge. But I do see a role for qualitative research um, in telling the sort of more complex stories behind, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, um, policies that are trying to create economic security for people. Thanks. This, these are fascinating issues. It leads me to perhaps a, a final question, 
uh, or a comment that you can treat as a question if you wish to, or or simply uh, not respond to if you don't wish to, which is um, the data itself uh, perhaps needs uh, a critical perspective in light of the new capacities we have to produce bottom-up data. It's very clear that our tradition of data collection, uh, going back to the invention of statistics as the science of the state in 18th century Prussia, has been statistics as a top-down uh, set of mechanisms, procedures, and institutions designed to inform the government about its population with a hint of ownership and control uh, in the its, and of course designed to be used precisely to control that population. Uh, first, historically, to control its military capacity by making sure that no young men avoided military service. Later in the 19th century, in when public health was invented, uh, ensuring um, uh, the uh, health of the population in line with what were taken from a top-down perspective to be the guidelines of what should uh, be a healthy population, and moving into the 20th century, all sorts of uh, other variables uh, to do with things as diverse as education and, and skills, and of course, uh, issues around uh, political conformity and um, uh, control of territory. But it doesn't have to be that way. And perhaps new approaches to data driven by social media, by artificial intelligence, by new ways of uh, collecting uh, data on a decentralized manner and validating it, not through central control, but various uh, through various kinds of distributed ledger systems, allow one to imagine a radically different approach to data, both for research purposes and for policy purposes. Is is this something that you find interesting? Do you have any comments on, on that kind of vision? Or does it have the potential, while sounding uh, attractive on the page or in, in a conversation, to actually become an even worse uh, nightmare of, of panoptical control, uh, to, um, to paraphrase Foucault on Bentham? Yeah, no, thank you. Look, I, I think it comes down to who owns the data, who owns um, and who has access to it. And so, yes, social media, you know, we're able to communicate with each other, but we also know it's on a pl on platforms that are owned by very rich people that can do, um, you know, have been experimenting on our moods and our um, subjectivities and trying to change the ways we sort of respond to different advertising and and um, and and different things that come up in our feeds, um, for example. So, um, who owns the data? I think really is really important, and there is some really exciting and important research here in Australia coming from um, First Nations, my First Nations colleagues around data sovereignty. Uh, and so, you know, there's a long colonial history uh, that sort of maps onto your comments, John, around, um, you know, using data to control populations that research in Australia has played a, a very crucial but dark role in controlling, assimilating and, 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 and you know, attempts of elimination of First Nations people here in Australia. Um, and so there's been a big attempts for First Nations people to own the data. So when, you know, when researchers go to communities or um, or start or look at projects, that, that that data goes back to communities that it is owned and stored on country um, and, and, and people make the decisions about it 
and use it in ways to advocate for the futures that they they want to see. So that's a shift, um, but it's but it's got a long way to go. And I think you know questions about who owns the data um, and what's the data being used for uh, needs constant focus. So yes, these different technologies may be exciting, but they're also controlled in within a system that. Um, that supports, you know, elite elite interest by and large, uh, and so, you know, uh, democratizing that and socialising that, I think, is is really is the sort of crucial bit. Thanks. Yeah, I I really agree. And as perhaps you know, UNESCO is is strongly invested in this area of um, what we sometimes call responsible research and innovation, which is a term um, originally invented in in Europe by the European Commission, but is has become of broader application. And indeed, uh, UNESCO is currently developing a recommendation on the ethics of artificial intelligence, uh, which um, once it goes through the diplomatic process of negotiation will be adopted by UNESCO's General Conference in November 2021, and will provide a benchmark on uh, many of these issues of uh, control, ownership, uh, sovereignty, uh, with respect to data, particularly new kinds of data, emerging from new uh, kinds of data systems. But uh, that will be a topic for a whole new uh, podcast. Um, thank you very much, uh, Elise, uh, uh, for uh, this really interesting conversation on um, unconditional minimal, minimum incomes and uh, the applications and implications. Um, thank you very much for joining us as an expert on the Inclusive Policy Lab podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you.